Have you ever had a dinner turn into a disaster? Uh, when I was a kid, we were traveling one time, and it was sort of one of those vacation things where we sort of went to tour a city that was within driving distance, and we uh, got in touch with uh, this longtime family friend who lived in the area, and uh, they invited us over for dinner after we had our kind of day of gallivanting all over the city, and of course, free dinner for a family of four we're in. It was the worst meal I have ever eaten in my life. And, you know, I was a kid, so, and my, my mom and daddy raised me the right way, so I didn't say anything, I had manners, and there was this little thought in the back of my head that thought, okay, maybe this is some of that grown-up food that kids just don't like. You know, when you're a kid, and it's like, you know, it's not a burger or mac and cheese or ch chicken nuggets, so may maybe it's just something that I don't like. And so I'm just going to be quiet. I remember about the only thing I could get down was cantaloupe. It was in the summertime, and she had some cantaloupe. And you would eat something, and it would be so terrible, and you're like, I'll wash it down with the tea, and the tea was sour. I mean, everything was terrible. And I don't remember who broke first when we got back in the car. <laughs> but somebody finally said something, and we all agreed it was the worst food we had ever eaten and I could tell you, it was 40 years later, this is still a story in our family. <laughs> you can remember, it, our dinner turned into a disaster, and we turned into McDonald's and got some decent food. <laughs> I mean, something edible. And I'll bet you have had one of those dinners that turned into a disaster, and it might not have been bad food. It could have been bad company, a bad date dinner, oh. a bad conversation, a Thanksgiving dinner that got sideways over something you'd really rather not talk about. Uh, bad company. We've all kind of had those experiences where we had this dinner that didn't go exactly how we thought it was going to go. And today we're going to study a dinner at a religious leader's house, a Pharisee is what they were called, that did not go the way that he had planned. And I think he had high hopes for this dinner. Because it was a dinner to which he had invited Jesus. Good morning. My name is Carter McInnes. I'm lead pastor here at Mountaintop. So honored that you have come here today. Whether you are brand new, and if you're new watching, thanks so much for welcoming us into your home, um, wherever you are, maybe into your living room. And if you're, if you're here each and every week, it's always great to see you. We are right at the beginning of this series we're doing leading up to Easter in which we're studying the Gospel of Luke and stories that are only found in Luke. This series is called Jesus, a research project, because that's kind of the way Luke, who did not know Jesus, who did not really know any of the disciples until later on in his life, not while they were actively involved in Jesus' life, uh, or while Jesus was on earth, but he came to faith later in life uh, as an adult in the middle of his professional career and went back and wrote his account. And so these stories are only found in the Gospel of Luke. And this one centers on a dinner at the house of a Pharisee. Now, if you have ever heard this term and you wondered what does this term mean and who are these guys, they often get a bad rap in Christian circles, they often get a bad rap in the church because perhaps guys like me have talked about them. And, I mean, they, they often end up on the wrong side of stories about Jesus. 
They often end up in opposition to Jesus. But deep down, these Pharisees, they were religious leaders in the Jewish community in the first century, were mostly just really good men who were devout followers of the God of Israel. In fact, one of, their, one of their key points of their identity was that they were experts in the law, what we would call the law, or you read in our New Testament when it talks about the law, they would have said Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and all of the laws. In fact, they were such experts and such, such devout adherents to the law that they made extra laws. There were some ambiguities in the law, like exactly what did it mean to not work on the Sabbath? What constituted as work? So all of those little, little ambiguities in the law, they created extra laws so that they would, they would know what exactly they should and shouldn't do, and they followed them to a T. Their, um, their religious counterparts in the first century Judaism was a group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were a different kind of religious leader. They, they had some distinctions. Sadducees were mostly the religious and the cultural and economic elite. The Sadducees served in the temple. They were kind of the, 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 the cream of the crop of society. But the Pharisees weren't like that. The Pharisees came from diverse backgrounds. They, all walks of life, you would have had Pharisees who had day jobs in the marketplace, Pharisees that were low income, middle income, Pharisees from rich families. They were from all over the place, and there were lots of them. We believe that there were somewhere around 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Jesus, it, which Palestine probably had a population of about 4 million people. But 6,000 a lot. It's not like there was just a dozen or just, you know, 20, 25. There were Pharisees in all walks of life. They kind of infiltrated culture. And the last thing that set them apart from the Sadducees that aligned them much more closely with Jesus is that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The resurrection of the righteous, that is. The Sadducees did not believe in spirits or, a sp or, or like this kind of this otherworldly life or eternal life or heaven or angels. And they did not believe the resurrection. But Pharisees seemed to align more closely with what Jesus was teaching about the resurrection. They believed that one day that there would be a final judgment and there would be the resurrection of the righteous that would experience eternal life with their creator, God. We see when Jesus, in John chapter 11, when Jesus goes, one of the most famous stories of Jesus' healing, more than a healing, he, rises, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And when he gets to Lazarus' house, Lazarus' sister, Martha, meets him and says, Oh, Jesus, if you could have been here, you know, you could have stopped this from happening. And... Uh, Jesus makes a statement to it. He says, Lazarus will rise again. And does anybody remember what? If, you, if you've been in church, maybe you remember what, he, what Martha replies to him. If you're new, this is what she says. Martha says, oh, I know he will rise at the resurrection in the last day. Martha has been influenced. You can tell Marcia, Martha has been under the 
teaching of the more pharisaical line of theology and thinking. She's under, she believes in the resurrection, and this is what Jesus seems to have taught, this same thing, the resurrection. So the Pharisees, they weren't all bad guys. They were just trying to be faithful. They were just trying to be holy. They were just trying to be pious in the way that they followed the law, and of course. Now, in the New Testament, we find some pretty obtuse Pharisees. Some guys that just don't quite get it. They're often misunderstood, but some guys don't quite get it. The Pharisee that we're going to read about today seems to have had good intentions, at least at first. The story is found relatively early in Jesus' ministry. If you got your Bibles, where we're going to land in just a minute is chapter 7 of Luke. It's right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But there has already become... Um, there has already emerged some tensions between Jesus and the religious authorities, whether they be Pharisees or Sadducees. There's some tension that, that, that the Jesus has healed people and he's begun teaching some drastically different things than they're used to. And the crowds are growing and there seem to be two points of, te two points of tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, Sadducees, and all these religious authorities. The first one is outsiders. Jesus' response to or lack of response with outsiders. It is not just that Jesus is healing. It's who. Jesus is healing the demon-possessed. Religious leaders wouldn't even want to be near the demon-possessed. Jesus is healing a man who has leprosy. Jesus heals the servant of an unclean Gentile Roman centurion. Jesus raises the, the child of a widow from the dead, a widow, a social, political outcast. But it's not just the healing Jesus is found to have been having dinner. He eats with outsiders, or the way they would have said it, with sinners and tax collectors. The religious elite, the religious authorities in their day, whether they be Pharisees or Sadducees, wouldn't want anything to do with outsiders. They wouldn't want to get close but Jesus' response to outsiders is totally different. When outsiders get close to Jesus, he draws them in closer. Religious leaders in their day wanted to separate themselves from outsiders. And maybe you have experienced that same thing. Maybe, maybe one of the reasons you've stayed away from church is that you have felt that same kind of feeling. That outsiders weren't welcome in the church. Outsiders weren't welcome with the Christians. Outsiders weren't welcome with the religious folks. And maybe that made you think outsiders aren't welcome with God. But Jesus seems to have a very different view. He draws close those who feel like outsiders. The second tension is this, what we call, is this teaching. And what I call, the re, Jesus has, seems to have a reinterpretation of righteousness. In their minds, they had a very solid idea of what they thought righteousness was. But Jesus seems to have a very different mindset about what righteousness is than what the religious leaders. He offers a lame man forgiveness. 
which in their, their religion was considered blasphemy. Only God could dole out forgiveness. And if Jesus is out here doling out forgiveness, just who does he think he is? Jesus it has, seems to have very different interpretations of the Sabbath, of the of fasting regulations that they have. He seems to operate in a much different way than they do. He teaches a radical view of society that we are to love our enemies and not judge others. The Pharisees' entire existence was kind of built on judging others. <laughs> That we're better, that we follow the rules, and you should follow the rules just like us. You should act just like us. You should keep all the customs of us. And the Jewish culture was built on the idea that Rome was the enemy. And Jesus is reinterpreting this. So this Pharisee, maybe out of curiosity, maybe as a bit of an olive branch to Jesus. All the Pharisees, you know, they're raising up a stink, they're starting to murmur, they're starting to talk. But this Pharisee, he says, I want to know more well, why this guy's teaching what he's teaching. I want to know where he gets his power for healing. I want to know more about him. And he invites him over for dinner. So let's look at what it says in verse 36 of Luke chapter 7. If you're in the room and you do not have a hard copy Bible and you want one, please take one with you at the bookshelves when you go. We want that to be our gift to you. This is what it says. When one of the Pharisees, and we're going to learn his name in just a minute, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Jesus accepts the invitation. In this series, when we're looking at passages that are only found in Luke, it's always worth asking, why was this story not recorded in the other gospel stories? And this one might have a really easy answer. None of the disciples are mentioned in this story they may have not even been present. I mean, of course, this is early in Jesus' ministry, so he doesn't even really have full 12 disciples, and there's no evidence that they, you know, they're like with each other 24-7. Jesus certainly went to dinners that the disciples did not go to. They went to dinners, because this is all happening, you know, around their own community. So it's possible that the disciples weren't even there. They might not have even known this story. So perhaps Luke interviewed this very Pharisee to hear this story. Or more likely, the woman that we're going to meet in just a minute. And I imagine this Pharisee wants to get to know Jesus more. Other Pharisees have questioned Jesus. They have they've complained about him. But this Pharisee has invited him in to try to learn more. But then things take a turn for the worse. The dinner turns into a disaster. Namely because of an uninvited guest. This is what it says. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on his feet. Now Luke does not name the woman. And he just says that she had lived a sinful life. And in fact, he doesn't even describe what kind of sin that she had been guilty of. But the word he uses here 
is a word that would have been used for someone who was a known sinner. Everyone in town knew this gal's reputation. She was a known sinner. You can probably guess for yourself how a gal in the first century gets a reputation as a known sinner. And now there are some logistical things here that we need to understand. It's not a shock that she comes into the dinner party. Life was much more public back then. Houses were much more open, much less private. Do any of you know who your neighbor had dinner with last night? This is good because I was going to say if you do, you're a little too nosy, okay? <clears throat> right? And your, your neighbors don't know who had dinner with you outside perhaps seeing a car outside in the driveway or you saw a car. You might have known they had dinner, but we don't know. We have windows and blinds and doors, and we just have a much more private life. But in their world, the homes were much more open. There was much more public access. Have you ever wondered how everyone always knew that Jesus was having dinner with sinners and tax collectors? Would anyone in the world in your neighborhood know the kind of people you were having at your house? We wouldn't know. Our lives are closed off in private. But in their world, the homes were much more open. You could sort of see everything. Everybody had much more access to people, and you could kind of come right in. Now, the other thing is that their eating customs kind of show, would describe why she is in the position that she's in behind him at his feet. Now, if you've ever thought about that you think about the way we eat dinner the way you had dinner last night and it just seems weird you're like is she under the chair like what's the what's it like here and I always want you to know I had this plan to have like you know a first century uh, mat and to like to show you how Jesus might have been reclining at the table to eat and our programming team thought that would not be a flattering camera shot of me it's because they love me. So thank you. So, but, and they found a better picture, right? And it's also possible that if I got down, I might not could get back up. Um, he was, you were reclined at the table. So their tables, I mean, table's a generous term. It could have been a mat on the floor or a very, very low elevated table surrounded by pillows that you literally reclined at. You laid down with you know, an arm on a, uh, on a pillow and eating sort of, sort of like this. So it makes perfect sense that she comes up behind him at his feet. If, if you were behind someone who was reclining at a table, the first thing that would be accessible would be his feet. And she has shown up. She's come prepared. Maybe she heard that Jesus had healed people. Maybe she had caught wind that Jesus had offered forgiveness to people. And the expensive alabaster jar that she carried was thought to preserve ointments and perfume. And she came ready to worship, to adore, to pour out her love on Jesus. Maybe she heard that he even welcomes outsiders. And she wanted to see for herself. Listen to the response of the Pharisee who has planned this dinner to finally get to the bottom of who Jesus is and what he's all about. And things have gone sideways. When the Pharisee who, have invited, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, 
He says, really interesting. If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. The man, the Pharisee, is not surprised or shocked that the woman would come into his dinner party. He is not shocked that the woman would do anything like this. He is shocked that Jesus won't respond. He is shocked at Jesus' response to her of just letting it go on. In their culture, it was much different than, than the way we experience culture. Men did not uh, associate with other women in public that, wasn't, that were not their wife. You didn't talk to another woman. You certainly didn't touch another woman. <clears throat> There were some Pharisees, there were some Pharisees that took this to the nth degree. Some of the most strict rule-following Pharisees would not even be seen touching their wife in public. They would not hold their hand or put their arm around them or nudge their shoulder or anything. That, that you, had, you had no contact with a woman in public, but every good Jew knew that you did not come into contact with a stranger woman in public, especially a woman who might be a stranger to you, but her reputation precedes her. And this Pharisee says, I mean, listen, it is clear, it is clear that the Pharisee has had an idea that Jesus might be a prophet, that that's how, the, that's how the, the teachings, where he gets the wisdom from, that's where the healings are happening. But what has happened has proven to him that his unexpressed belief going into the dinner is true. We, here's what we believe. He doesn't believe Jesus is a true prophet. Like that's why, now we see why he invited him to dinner. I wanted to get to the bottom of this. I want to see what this guy was all about. I, I wanted to hear him talk. I want to see how he'll respond to everybody. He has heard rumblings, and perhaps he's even listened to some of his, uh, of his teachings. But this dinner, his questions have been answered. A true prophet would keep respectable distance from a known sinner. A man of righteousness would never associate with outsiders a man of holiness a pious man a true prophet would not let himself come into contact with someone as unclean as sinful and as outside as this woman a true prophet of God wouldn't touch somebody like her or let somebody like her touch him You may have had an experience like that with religion. Where you felt like an outsider and you weren't, you couldn't come in. You, you couldn't just make your way in. You, you were made to feel like you belonged on the outside. I'm so sorry if that has happened for you. I'm so sorry if you felt like you came in with some baggage to the church to the Christian faith and somebody may, shunned you and made you feel like you couldn't belong not that you don't belong that you couldn't belong that's what this pharisee thinks there is of course an alternative viewpoint perhaps this pharisee who we're about to learn is named simon 
has misjudged the heart of God. Jesus' actions have confirmed his suspicion that Jesus is not a real prophet. But Jesus' next move confirms the opposite because Jesus reads his mind. <laughs> oh, he might be more than a prophet. And he has come not just to prophesy, but to reveal the heart, the true heart of the God of Israel. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. You, I wish I could know what was going through Simon's head, right? Like, tell me. I mean, this guy, you just let this woman touch you. You don't know, you're unclean now. Tell me. And Jesus says, two people, he goes into parable mode. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. All right, so let's get some modern day math for us. What was a denarii? A denarii was a day's wage for a common agricultural laborer. A day's full wage. Okay, so let's think about for us. What is a day's wage for a common, maybe agriculture, farming, labor. I mean, let's go, we're going to shoot low, but because I want to show you that it's still, like, this is a significant amount of money Jesus is talking about. Seven fifty, I think, is still minimum wage in Alabama. Let's go $10, okay? $10, $10 an hour, and how many hours you work a day? Typical, eight. So that's $80 a day. So in, Jesus is saying $80, a denarii. And do you remember what he said? Somebody owes 50 days wages, and somebody owes, do you remember what he said? 500 days wages. I just think about how much you make in a day. This is big money. So 50 times 80, 50 days wages would be 4,000. In our terms, in our financial kind of world, Jesus is saying somebody owes 4,000 and somebody owes 500 days wages. Somebody owes 40,000. And these are just like low bar normal kind of agricultural worker. So that's in our terms. And then Jesus says the rest of the story. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. The one didn't have 4,000, the other one didn't have 40,000. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Is this a trick question? That's what Simon's thinking. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. I mean, which one would be more thankful? The question's almost rhetorical, but it's an easy answer. The bigger the grace, the bigger the gratitude. The, bit, the more the debt forgiven, the more a debt of gratitude that I owe. Of course, it's a parable. It's meant to convey a deeper spiritual truth. Because the point is, it's not money that needs to be forgiven. It's me. It's you. It's all of us. And Jesus said, this story played out right before their eyes. And everyone at the dinner party completely missed it. Then he turned toward the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? Pretty hard to miss her. She, everybody knows her around town. She came to my dinner party, made a scene. Yes, we see her. 
I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, customary, to let someone wash their feet in their do- those days, because they're wearing sandals, and it's sandy over there, y'all. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. He doesn't make light of her reputation. He just gives her a new one. Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Of all the people here, Jesus says, and there's some people here that are really good at religion, this woman gets it. He spells it out this way, that our expression of love reflects our experience of forgiveness. Our expression of love toward God expresses our, our experience of forgiveness from God. This woman expresses extravagant love because her experience of the radical love of God, her many sins are no match for the mercy of God. Her faults are nothing in the face of God's forgiveness. Grace is greater than all her sin. And your sin and my sin. The unsaid message that Jesus shares is that the woman is the only one in the whole dinner party who actually believed that she needed to be forgiven of anything. Simon, I mean, he's been polite to Jesus, but he's not shown an expression of love that's nigh unto embarrassing like this woman. And it's probably because he doesn't think he needs to. He would probably say, I'm good. Jesus reveals here two barriers to radical forgiveness. Represented by this Pharisee named Simon and basically everyone else at the dinner party and this women. And there's they're kind of two messages to two different groups of people. One to the religious, so if you consider yourself a Christian and that's me, that's a message for us. And one to those who might be new to faith, might consider themselves not even a believer. The first one is to the religious. That if, if there, Here's a barrier to radical forgiveness. If you haven't respe- received radical forgiveness, here's probably the reason, is that you've believed something wrong about yourself. You believe something wrong about yourself. That's Simon's problem and everyone else that is at the dinner party. They don't think they need to. They don't think they need to be forgiven. And let me say this the right way because it, it might sting a little if you call yourself a Christian and you have had a muted response to following Jesus, it has been muted, tampered, tempered down. And you don't understand why everybody is so crazy about Jesus and why everybody is so all in with following Jesus and why everyone is so radical about it. And you can't understand that, you know, for, faith, for you, faith is a thing but not the thing. It may be because you have believed something wrong about yourself. It may be because you have grossly underestimated the gravity of your sin. Because Jesus said himself 
Whoever is forgiven little loves little. Jesus says the only explanation if you love me a little is you think, you think you've been forgiven just a little. And of course there's a secret here, right? Who here needs to be forgiven by God just a little? Not me. If you hadn't experienced this radical forgiveness of God, it could be because you just been, you believe something wrong about yourself, you just hadn't owned up to the reality that you're broken to. As sinful as the sinful woman with a bad reputation. Second thing, Second reason, and this is for non-believers, if it's you at home or you're in your room and you're kind of new to this, that you might not have received radical forgiveness is you believe something wrong about Jesus. You believe something wrong about Jesus. You think you've got too much sin that God couldn't, and God could never love you. God doesn't want anything to do you and some of you do with you. And some of you have experienced that. You have had pastors. You've had guys like me in my positions or leaders that have tried to put you in a category that have, have told you that you, you're unredeemable, you're unlovable. You might have even had a parent or grandparent say that to you because of your past, because of your mistakes. And you have put onto Jesus this definition that you've got to measure up to him for him to love you you have believed something about Jesus that just isn't true and I want to proclaim to you that Jesus is a friend of sinners he is a friend of sinners and there is no reputation that could precede you coming into the room with Jesus where you aren't welcome to come at his feet and pour it out to him and he says you're forgiven your many sins are are forgiven the radical truth about Jesus is confirmed with this woman that those who feel like they are outsiders to God and unwelcome with God are welcome with Jesus he reveals the true heart of our creator God and then he lets this woman known uh, lets this woman know who is this known sinner he gives her one more message then Jesus said to her your sins are forgiven and the other guests began to say among themselves who is, who is this who even forgives sins? Who does he think he is? And Jesus, is like, he doesn't even pay attention to what they say. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Did you know you can go in peace? You can go without the weight, without carrying the shame and whether you have experienced that a long time ago or whether today is the first time that it actually became real, that your past can be cleansed, done with, over, Jesus says our expression of love reflects our experience of forgiveness. That our expression of how we, how we act toward him should reflect our experience of forgiveness. And you won't need an alabaster jar or perfume. And let me just say this. And it will call you and me to something more than simply worship. Now, don't get me wrong. I love worship. Man, that More Than Able song. Our band rocked that today, didn't they? So powerful. The Spirit's real in this room. 
right? And I, 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 and I believe this with all my heart, that if you have experienced the radical forgiveness of Jesus, you should sing with all you've got, every a bit of air you've got in your lungs, because, we, because God inhabits the praises of his people. And if you feel comfortable because your hands are free of the shame, free of the weight of your guilt, if you want to lift those up when we sing, I think that's beautiful. I love that. I think you should totally do that. But Jesus didn't say, if you love me, you'll sing real loud and put your hands in the air. In fact, one time he said, it's pretty easy. If you'll love me, you'll keep my commands. And his commands are actually much simpler than the commands that the Pharisees had of 600 plus laws. He said, here's my commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everything you've got, you love God. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another as I have loved you. Forgive one another as I have forgiven you. Honor one another as I have honored others above myself through sacrifice. You do to others what you would have them want to do to you. You put other people first. You put God number one in your life and all eight billion of everybody else number two. And you come third. You want to know how to love me? That's how you do it. And if you want to sing loud and put your hands in the air, that's great. But Jesus says, I want to know how you can love me when you walk out the doors and you meet a neighbor, you meet a sinful woman, you meet a man that gets on your nerves, you meet a coworker that grinds your gears, you meet an aunt again and again and again that always seems to say the wrong thing, and you love them. And Jesus says, our expression of love reflects our experience of forgiveness. And so here's what I want to ask you. Here's what, this is a question you and I have to wrestle with. This is what we've got to wrestle with. If we only do those things a little bit, when Jesus says, if we want to follow him, we pick up our cross, we die to ourselves daily, we deny ourselves and we follow him. If we only do those things a little bit, does that mean that we think that we've been forgiven just a little. Because Jesus says whoever loves a little must think they've been forgiven a little. And I don't know about you, but that means that I have got a whole bunch of love to share for the rest of my life because I have experienced a whole bunch of forgiveness. Because, friends, I've needed it. And I got a hunch you need it too. The good news is that Jesus welcomes us into relationship with him through his forgiveness. And it is this forgiveness that is supposed to be the catalyst for how we live our lives. In fact, when he was with his disciples on the night before he died, he took bread, and they're just having their normal meal that they always had, and he broke it, and he says, this is my body broken for you, and every time you do this, you remember me. In other words, every time you do this, you remember that my body was broken on the cross to forgive you. And then he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins.
And every time you do it, you remember you're forgiven. Occasionally there are people in my 20 plus years of ministry when we have what we call the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion or the Eucharist that just won't come forward. And oftentimes I've had people tell me, I just feel so unworthy. And my response to them has always been, if you ever feel worthy to come to the table of the Lord, <clears throat> please don't come forward. <laughs> because this is a table of forgiveness for the unworthy, for all of us, the sinful men and women who come and receive grace and mercy in the body and blood and then go show our love for God and all of his creations because of what happens at the table. So you're invited to come today. If you don't feel worthy, good news. This is a table for the unworthy because he is worthy. He is worthy. We have. Uh,